week's edition of your rights at work it takes more than a pandemic to keep this show off the air chris garlic ed smith will with you of course 202-588-0893 how you join this show if you've got questions about your rights on the job and i'll tell you what these days a lot of questions about rights on the job right ed smith there are always a lot of questions but in certainly these time of difficulty uh Every hour on the hour, there's questions. And so uh, for the, those of you in the audience, uh, if you've got questions about what, what's happening to your job, uh, whether you're essential or not, whether you're going out every day or not, uh, feel free to call us, 202-588-0893. First of all, Chris, how you how you faring up? How's life treating you? I tell you what, you know, it's uh, just one darn thing after another. And in fact, uh, I want to start with uh, our good friend John Boardman uh, with the yeah. hotel and restaurant workers. I mean, everybody is hurting right now. Uh, but, John, last time you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, uh, remind me of how many of, of your folks are out of work at the moment? Have we got, uh, have we got Mr. Boardman there? Before I answer the question, Chris, I want to take a, a, just a small point of personal privilege and say uh, thank you to all of Ed's members in the um, uh, health care sector who are out there doing the right thing and the good thing for all of us every single day. Um, Amen, our, brother. Amen. Thank our you, members are... Uh, uh, 98% of them are out of work now. Oh, my and, God. And uh, for the most part have been for for a month or more. Um, that is just that, shocking. Uh, hospitality, as you know, uh, Chris, um, is one of the hardest hit sectors. Uh, when these types of things happen, uh, generally we are the first to go, and unfortunately we're generally the last to come back. So... Uh, we don't know where this thing is going at this point, but we suspect it will be uh, harder and longer than um, other parts of the economy, uh, simply because uh, people will be uh, getting on airplanes and, and going on trips uh, last uh, before they do anything else with the money that they may be getting when they finally get back to work. So, John, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and, and you know, the obvious reference point for, uh, for us was was nine eleven, and uh, you know, DC, DC, and New York, you know, the two you know hardest hit. But as you pointed out, then you know, there's a big difference between nine eleven and, and now. I mean, you know, nine eleven was was really focused uh, a lot more focused geographically, right? Well, we that's right, Chris, and we really had while there were some economic in, uh, impact nationally, there really were, were only two cities that were severely distressed uh, in the 9-11 process, and that was New York and Washington. Mm-hmm. Now what mm-hmm. we have is 
a much broader, much more expansive impact on the economy generally, and the ripples are going to continue to take effect. Our industry obviously was one of the first affected because of uh, the relationship that um, uh, transmitting the virus has to hospitality and travel generally. So uh, we were, I, I think, hit hardest right out of the box, but we're suffering like anyone else. Um, there are a lot of industries that are affected, and even uh, those folks who are still uh, fortunate to be at work go to work um, with the concern of uh, what are they going to be safe? Are they going to be able to return home in the same condition that they left the house in the morning to go punch in? Um, these are all uh, the circumstances of the times that we are in. So we are we are uh, suffering right now, but no less than any of those other industries that are are on layoff as well. John, what are you what are you doing? You know, uh, for and with your members uh, during this period. Uh, briefly, Chris, we have four programs going right now for our membership. Uh, First is uh, membership outreach. Um, we are, uh, I think, as we had discussed once before, calling every single one of our members. Um, we've now made it through most of our uh, our membership list, and in some cases we're circling back for second rounds to report on things. The second program we have going, and the, the one that is um, one of the most active, is our program to help members with unemployment insurance, and that involves not only helping them get through the process if they can, but also trying to troubleshoot some of the issues that come up that may prevent them from getting uh, a claim filed or, or collecting money once a claim is filed. And uh, that is consuming a good deal of our time. Uh, we are also... Um, have uh, what we call the distressed member program. Uh, as you imagine, in our industry, uh, people don't have a lot of money in the bank account. So as they are sitting home now in uh, the fifth week of uh, unemployment without, uh, in many cases, any money coming in yet, um, they are running up against uh, some very severe problems. It may be uh, credit card debt, it may be an aggressive landlord, it might be a bank pressuring for a mortgage payment, but we have a system set up to uh, help our members work through those issues, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I'm sad to report that there is now uh, an uptick in the number of members calling into that program um, every day. Um, Wow. out of that program, uh, we have a fourth program, which is to help members who are in very dire straits, and uh, members who come in through the distressed member program get referred over to our special assistance program, which is to help folks who literally have no money and, and can't get food. And there, the union has um, uh, purchased uh, grocery cards, and uh, we are distributing um, food cards to our members who are in dire straits. So that's well, pretty much what we've been doing. Yeah, and let me just ask you this uh, before we let you go. But, I mean, you know, I, mean, I know you're doing a lot for your members, and it's, it's just tough, and it's tough all over. It's tough around the country. It's tough around the globe. 
But I have to say, I've been really shocked. And as you point out, this is not, you know, obviously just your folks. But, uh, you know, if you're not in a union, now that's always been a tough road to hoe. It's why it's been you know better to be in your union. But, you know, the folks who are not in unions in, in your industry, they must be really in a tough spot, right? We have the ability to advocate uh, because when we speak, we speak for a large group of workers. Uh, for example, on our UI program, Chris, we're working very closely with the government at the highest level to work through these unemployment insurance issues. So uh, individuals can't do what we do. And um, I, I, I don't know what individuals out there who are laid off, who have these problems, who don't have some place to go to advocate, uh, I don't know what they're doing. The union provides a strong voice in these settings. Wow. Uh, just one last question, gentlemen. You know, you've been you've been around for for a minute here in, in the labor movement. Uh, you know, how how are you holding up? Uh, I'm very fortunate. I have a great staff. I have great colleagues in the movement who have been calling me regularly. I just got a uh, a call um, from uh, a, uh, another friend in the building trades who uh, whose union has stepped up to make a donation to the. Community Services Agency, uh, on behalf of, of our members, and um, I, I feel very fortunate. There is uh, all the friends I've made over the years, both in my membership and, and across the labor movement, have all been very supportive in these times. And I'm also um, very blessed to have uh, a fantastic staff who are working every day, and um, we cheer each other every morning um, on, uh, on a staff call. Well, John Boardman, it is, it is always somehow deeply reassuring to hear, hear your voice and to hear about the great things that uh, not only your local, but I have to say Unite Here. We did a shout out to the Unite Here, which has a, a good fund. We've got a, a link on our website, dclabor.org, uh, which I know, you know, some of that's going to help your folks, but it's also going to help folks around the country. So uh, check that out at dclabor.org. But uh, John Boardman, always good to talk to you. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to uh, checking in with you uh, in the not too distant future, when I hope things will be better. Thanks so much, Chris, and thanks to Ed and all of his uh, people who are working for us every single day. Absolutely. Take care, John. Be careful out there, all right? Bye bye. Bye bye. John Borman, his executive secretary treasurer of Unite Here Local 25, that, uh, that's a local that represents uh, thousands of hotel workers. Uh, here in the Metro D.C. area. Now, uh, Ed Smith, do we still have you on? You still have me on. Oh, yep. good, good, good. I was I was uh, trying to keep track of what was going on there on Skype. Hey, listen, before we go to our next guest, I do want to double back uh, on, and pick up on John's point uh, with your guys, uh, your, your folks, I should say, your nurses. I mean, first of all, yes, absolutely, they have been, uh, you know, like all first and, and with first responders, you know, the thing about it is that you're kind of used to being on the front lines, but, you know, you have had a really tough few weeks. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, what we've been trying to what we've been educating our members on all all issues relating to COVID-19, trying to make sure that we provide them with uh, 
the safe precautions. I mean, they're the ones going in every day. They're still caring for people. And uh, I guess I feel my job, first and foremost, is to make sure we educate our members about the need for testing uh, upon exposure, the need to have the right uh, equipment to continue to do their jobs, and not only engage the members on that, but the community. And so we've tried to be in the forefront to talk about um, what needs to be done in this emergency. And, uh, yeah, it's been a very difficult, I would say, more than two weeks. Certainly it's been a difficult month. And uh, hopefully as we go forward, um, I'm hoping that uh, it slows down in the next month or so. But we're going to continue to make sure that we get the word out that in issues like testing, making sure there's enough equipment, making sure there's enough staffing so that we can, uh, you know, beat back this uh, horrible pandemic. Absolutely. Hey, we've been joined by Katie Barrows. Uh, Katie, I was so happy to get some good news. I mean, here at Union City and on Union City Radio, you know, we've been staying on top of all of the, you know, just horrific and, and troubling news about the pandemic and the effects on workers and the effects on the community. And uh, I had a really good story. Uh, Katie's uh, vice president of communications at the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union, or NPEU. Uh, and Katie, you had some good news the other day. Do you want to share it with us? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we're a union of nonprofit professionals. Um, and so, um, we, we do have the luxury of being able to work at home, many of us. Um, and so we've, we've been continuing to organize during this pandemic. Um, and we, uh, we just went public with, uh, the staff at Lawyers Committee, uh, for Civil Rights Under Law, um, who are joining our union. Um, they've asked for voluntary recognition of their uni- union from, uh, from management. And so we're awaiting, uh, that. And uh, they are the 21st organization to join MPU um, and the 12th in the last since 2018. Um, so we've been talking to a, a number of uh, groups of workers um, since before the pandemic. And um, we've continued to work with those groups to organize uh, during these difficult times. Well, I mean, first of all, NPEU uh, has just been on an organizing tear, uh, <laughs> as you say, for, you know, especially the last couple of years. But I was just blown away that, you know, while while most of the rest of us are, you know, just trying to <laughs> hold it together, you know, day to day in this pandemic. And the fact that, you know, you're out there continuing organizing, you know, I got to I got to give major props. That is that is a real accomplishment. I, I, I'm seriously impressed. I, I want you to I guess, first of all, tell folks more about the nonprofit professional employees union so folks know more about that. Yeah, so we were uh, founded in 1998 when um, the staff at uh, the Economic Policy Institute organized. Um, and then since then, we've been adding groups of uh, nonprofit employees. Um, and so now we have about 350 members um, in the D.C. area and around the country. Um, we represent nonprofits like uh, the uh, uh, Center for American Progress, um, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, uh, and the uh, Community Change. Um, and so we've really uh, ramped up our organizing in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, so uh, last year we organized the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. 
Food and Water Watch, um, the uh, staff who creates the, the Action Network, um, as well as Juice United for Justice. Um, and then this year so far, we've had uh, the staff at Jobs to Move America, um, Center for uh, Policy Priorities, um, and the Open Market, Markets Institute, and now uh, the Lawyers Committee uh join NPEU. Um, and so uh, we've, we've been getting a lot of interest in organizing from nonprofits. I, again, we're, we're very thankful for the frontline workers, and um, we're fortunate enough to have uh, folks who are working from home so we can do, you know, digital organizing via Zoom um, and, and other, uh, you know, technology and platforms. So I should mention uh, NPU is part of the, uh, and I, I always hate to start throwing our acronyms around because we have so many of them in the labor movement, you're, but you're part of IFPTE, which is the International Federation of Professional and Technical Employees, um, and I think you're affiliated with them uh, a few years ago, if I'm not mistaken, but what's the idea behind having uh, a, a union specifically for nonprofit professionals? Yes, yeah, so we're uh, we were actually founded as IFPTE Local Seventy, um, mm-hmm. and the our focus is to make sure that um, nonprofit employees have a say in their workplace, and they're able to um, strengthen their mission-driven uh, organization so that it um, you know it works better for for for. Uh, completing their mission or, or for, for focusing on their mission. Um, and uh, we also realized that uh, nonprofit employees often suffer from burnout, so a big focus is also making sure that uh, careers at nonprofit organizations are sustainable. Um, and, you know, in these challenging times, we have had some concerns about continuing to organize, um, but we do believe that... you. A union is the best tool to create stability um, in a time of uncertainty. Um, and so uh, we've been working with the, the groups that have reached out to us um, to continue to help them um, organize their, their colleagues and coworkers um, and, and create a union. Excellent, excellent. All right, let me bring in my co-host, uh, Ed Smith, uh, I think has a question here. Hi, Katie. Thanks for being on. We really appreciate it. Um, I do have a question concerning uh, the relationship uh, with the the newer members that you've uh, organized. And uh, uh, because they're nonprofit, I'm still I'm probably certain they're still working during this crisis. And uh, have you had any feedback on um, basically their emotional state, how they're coping with the day to day pressures um, in supporting um various workers for nonprofits? I mean, we, we keep in close contact with the membership. We've had a number of um, t- online town halls, um, like check-ins and, uh, and meetings as, as well. And um, I know a lot of groups um, are adapting to working from home um, and are looking at ways to, you know, to manage anxiety um, and, and talking to their employers about that. Um, so, you know, we've, we've done our best to, um, you know, try to keep 
people feeling as sane as possible in these uh, crazy times. Sanity is uh, sometimes <laughs> overrated, perhaps not in this case, though. Right. Let me ask you a question, Katie. I think, you know, in, in the nonprofit sector, and I, I've worked in the nonprofit sector, I mean, you know, if you look at, at who that sector tends to attract, right, um, it, it's folks who are really, you know, committed to a cause, committed to issues, committed to organizations. And I think a lot of times, you know, you wind up with folks who are maybe – uh, not as comfortable thinking about, you know, uh, you know, just sort of the ordinary kinds of things that a union fights for, you know, rights on the job, wages, benefits, you know, uh, things like that. Is is that are those are the kind of things that that uh, well, let me just sort of put it to you that way. I mean, is that true? Well, I mean, the our you know, our members care deeply about their organization mission. That's why they work there. Um, you know, no one's going to get rich working at a nonprofit. Um, but we also realize um, people have to be able to live, especially in expensive places like Washington, D.C. Um, and so while really the main purpose is to strengthen the organization so we can better serve our missions, um, we do uh, work to, to raise uh, salaries with, with um, you know, minimum wages and pay scales at a number of organizations have negotiated to make sure the minimum salary is uh, around $50,000 and that uh, uh, folks get annual cost of living increases. Um, And then, you know, we also have um, made great gains on things like paid parental leave for nonprofit workers, um, where our units, um, you know, range from getting eight weeks to 16 weeks. Um, And so, yeah, while... Some, like while there is concern about uh, putting a financial burden on the organizations, um, you know we we have to be practicing what we preach at the nonprofits we work for, and making sure that the uh, that the staff are able to live um, and and work in the communities uh, that their organization is located in. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, Ed. So I'm going to ask a question, kind of the gorilla in the room question. Um, <laughs> That's, that, he's talking about me. <laughs> you are the gorilla in the room. I can't see you. I can I can only see a, a photo of you. I can't see you uh, uh, moving about. Um, but anyway, um, the gorilla in the room that I see, and of course, because I work for a labor organization, is so. How difficult is it to negotiate with the employer, which is a nonprofit? You would often one would think that the nonprofits, the unions would be very supportive of their worker rights because that's what we are. Uh, uh, that's what we do every day. Um, tell me about how your feeling uh, is with regarding negotiations with various nonprofit employers. Well, you know, generally management is understanding of, uh, of our requests during bargaining. Um, you know, sometimes they do push back on things. Um, but we, you know, in general are able to, um, see both, see each other's side and come to a compromise, um, during negotiations, um, and, uh, still be able to, uh, improve conditions for, um, our members in MPEU. Um, so it, it's, you know, 
it's a little bit a different approach. Um, we, we definitely focus more on collaborating and, and cooperating with management um, than any kind of adversarial relationship. Uh, and usually management comes around and, and realizes things uh, really are in the best interest of the organization that we're asking for. Well, Katie, that's something I've noticed. You know, every time I get a, a story from you guys about, you know, your latest organizing win, and, and normally the way the story goes, uh, honestly, when I, I get them is, you know, the first thing is, you know, folks have decided to join the union. The second thing is, you know, <laughs> we're, you know, it's about to fight, you know, to try to get recognition. And I love the NPEU reports because almost always, you know, then you have a quote from the boss saying, yes, we're happy to recognize, you know, the workers. And, and I mean, you just, you do not, and Ed, and Ed can back me up on this you do not get a lot of press releases where you have both the union and the boss you know uh saying nice things about each other in the same press release especially at the beginning of a campaign and so uh that's that's really cheery it's it's nice to see yeah i mean we really pride ourselves on being able to work with our management um and, and you know come up with a, a create a collaborative relationship because you know it's we're, again, we're at these nonprofits. We're working. We're a mission, and we want that mission to succeed. So it doesn't really help anyone to have a lot of conflict. Right, and and frankly, uh, since I know a lot of people in the nonprofit world, I think a lot of the people in management probably don't even like thinking of themselves as management, or they're probably not too long out of the worker ranks themselves. So you know, there's probably uh, a lot of mutual identification. Uh, you know, so <laughs> that probably helps. Uh, Katie, it's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, I, I don't have to tell you to keep up the good work because I know you guys will. But, uh, you know, I, I look forward to hearing more about uh, future organizing. And, uh, of course, stay safe and, and keep working. Thanks. Yeah, there's definitely going to be more uh, MPU news to come in the coming weeks and months, um, you know, because we believe that nonprofit workers, deserve a union even even in these challenging times and maybe even especially in these challenging times um so i encourage your uh viewers to follow us on twitter and all the social media platforms at nonprofit union um and uh thanks so much for having me on thanks katie take care be careful out there all right you as well uh, you can find Bye. out more about the national uh, the nonprofit professional employees union at npeu.org. Uh, they have a great website. Uh, lots of uh, happy-looking folks who have been organizing. All right. Uh, when we come back, the long, deep grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. That's right, right here on Your Rights at Work. But uh, let's have a little uh, little musical intro first. Check it out. Hey, we going on strike. We going on strike. For real. We going on strike. For real. Till they get this shit right. Come on. Tell us that this fair condition. Yeah, right. They don't work their ass off, they gon' get fired. Fact. Tim's working like.
white slaves and don't get high. The supervisor don't care if they get tired. They just trying to make sure themselves get high. The union gotta stick together, do this for each other. Do this one for all my sisters, do this for our brothers. Cause they trying to treat us wrong, but they say they love us. We need a change right now, we ain't going further. We going on strike. Strike. We going on strike. Real. We going on strike. Tonight. Till they get this shit right. Fact. We going on strike. Strike. We going on strike. Real. We going on strike. Tonight. Till they get this shit right. GMAC Cash on strike, of course, from uh, the uh, UAW strike last year. Thought that'd be a nice setup. Uh, actually, it was our guest who suggested that to me, and that's Tony Gilpin. Tony, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Chris, and, and thanks for everything you're doing to provide information to workers who really need it right now to keep themselves and their coworkers safe. Well, we're just trying to keep the word going out there. Tony is a labor historian, an activist, a writer. I have your your book right here, uh, uh, The Long, Deep Grudge, A Story of Big Capital, Radical Labor, and Class War in the American Heartland. Uh, uh, Tony, you know, my dad is a labor historian, studied the Knights of Labor. I fancy that I know, you know, a lot about uh, labor history, and I had completely forgotten about the particular strike that you are focused on and uh, the particular union. So let's do a little 101 uh, to, to remind me and to bring our listeners up to speed uh, on what you're talking about here. Right. Well, uh, I could say that the book is about a corporation that went out of existence decades ago and a small, obscure union that hardly anyone has heard about and also doesn't exist anymore. Um, but that doesn't usually get people to snap up the book. <laughs> <laughs> so it's they, should. they should. It's a great book. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I would say that the book actually is about exactly what your show is about. It's about what workers' rights are, how they have evolved over time, and who gets to define them. And more specifically, it's about um, one of America's founding industrial empires, uh, International Harvester, whose origins went back to the early 19th century in Chicago, and the McCormick family, the powerful and rich McCormick family who controlled it. And it's also the story of how a radical workers organization, the farm equipment workers, known as the FE, um, that traced its heritage back to that most famous of Chicago labor confrontations, the 1886 Haymarket Riot, that at least most people who know some labor history have heard of, how that union, the FE, arose in the 1930s to challenge this tremendously powerful company take it on and secure some of the uh, best contracts and um, um, best sense of workers' rights that um, we've had in this country in the American labor movement. It's also the story, I would add, of how the FE, which was a comparatively small union with a majority white membership, largely located in the Midwest, centered in that American heartland, um, drew its strength from this deeply felt, radical, transformational sense of solidarity among a membership that um, overcame entrenched racial animosity and built um, a tremendously important uh, 
racial coalition among African American and white its white membership. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I think that I mean the thing is, first of all, International Harvester, you know, certainly for for me and Ed, I mean that was a very big name. I mean, you're right. I think a lot of people today are like International. What? I mean, that company went out of business uh, years ago. But I mean, back in the day. You know, I mean, you you go out, you know, going in any farmland, you'd see the International Harvester, you know, um, equipment all over the place. Um, And and, but the connection to the labor struggle today, you know, even though it's a Mm -hmm. company that's gone out of business and a union that hardly anybody's heard of, you know, is is really uh, live. Let me let me bring in my co-host, Ed Smith here. Ed works with the the Nurse Association. He's also a bit of a fan of labor history as well. Ed. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Well, thank you for joining us. And I'm, I'm very interested in uh, reading your book and hopefully I'll get myself a copy soon. Um, that would be I'm kind of interested in, in, in the present day application regarding mm-hmm. um, building a coalition among uh, different types of people. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, or as you may or may not know, I represent nurses in the District of Columbia and um, the vast majority of our nurses are, are women. The vast majority are uh, women of color. Um, however, even among people of color, there are uh, differences uh, in culture and in, in culture and upbringing. And so dating going back to uh, uh, International Harvester and, and the building of the union and in, in, in uh, developing a better relationship between African-Americans and whites, what were some of the what were some of the changes that were made to either institutionally to have a better working relationship and how did that actually come about? Because it's one thing to say they built a, they built a good relationship. Mm-hmm. How you get there is a whole nother uh, bucket of bolts. Right. Well, um, one of the main focuses of the book uh, is about what the union did to organize uh, the newly opened in 1946 International Harvester Plant in Louisville, Kentucky. And so it looks at how uh, the union went down into Louisville, which was a segregated um, southern community uh, then, and how they confronted this problem head-on of building a coalition between uh, who were then uh, extraordinarily, you know, they, the southern racist white working class um, and the African-American workers who were also being hired at the plant. And so one of the uh, absolute commitments of the union, which was influenced heavily by the Communist Party, it was one of the, the unions in the CIO that was expelled in 1949 for its ties to the Communist Party, uh, one of the um, tenets of the union was an absolute insistence on racial solidarity from the beginning. So even in an organizing drive when they were challenged by other unions, the FE insisted on having these conversations with um, white workers and black workers and explaining to them both that the company was looking to exploit the differences and, and exploit those perceived differences between them um, to its own advantage and that the only way that both uh, black and white workers could make the gains that they needed to um, to make was by um, unity, was through unity and solidarity, and they didn't soft-pedal it. They had extensive conversations with workers um, where everything was aired out, and uh, the FE 
ultimately won that organizing drive in 1947 and then immediately turned around and went on a long strike to challenge the company's imposition of a lower wage scale for its southern plant uh, and also won that strike. So through that kind of solidarity, they proved to both the white majority workforce in the plant and the black workers there that they were willing to that the union would fight for them and that through that unity they actually achieved um, a better standard of living for um, for for all of the workers in the plant. So that's hey, one Tony, of the have... keys, I think, is is just addressing that immediately and and making it clear that this is the union's policy that translates into action. It's not just something you have on paper but that you're going to defend um, workers uh, and explain to them and make real to them what solidarity is about. Tony, do you have your book handy right there? I do. Good. Okay. Uh, I'm going to reintroduce you, and then when I, I finish that, I want you to read the first two paragraphs from your introduction on page one. Uh, I meant to start out with that, and I got so excited I kind of jumped the gun. So uh, we are talking with Tony Gilpin, a labor historian, activist, writer. Her latest book, uh, a must-read, I am deep into it now, I'm loving it, uh, The Long, Deep Grudge, A Story of Big Capital, Radical Labor, and Class War in the American Heartland uh, just came out February 25th, 2020. So this is brand new. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're stuck at home. This is a good time to, uh, you know, you can, you can get it online, actually. Um, but, uh, Tony, why don't you uh, read those first two paragraphs? I mean, I, I don't know how anybody can. I, I read those first two paragraphs, and it hooked me. Okay, this is from the first chapter, Undried Blood on the Pavement. A black man murdered in the pre-dawn darkness on a south side street. In 1952 Chicago, the rule was that such an event didn't matter much, not downtown anyhow. Reporters wouldn't be dispatched to cover it. The police would take their time investigating it, and in corporate suites, the death would have passed without notice. But this particular killing got plenty of attention. The victim was 52-year-old William Foster, an employee in the malleable iron foundry at the sprawling McCormick Works complex, the cradle of corporate behemoth International Harvester. He'd been a few blocks from his home, heading to work early on a mild October morning. The factory was nearly five miles away, so he always began his commute before sunup, when he met up with someone who struck him on the head and fractured his skull. Foster died a short time later without identifying who had attacked him. He left behind a wife and two children. No witnesses came forward, at least not right away. Shall I go on? Uh, well, no, let's, let's, let's uh, leave folks hanging there. Go get the book and read it. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and, and I will say, go I ahead. You have to, I, I was going to say, even though that begins the book, you have to read all the way to the end to find out what actually happened. Exactly. But but give people I mean, you're setting uh, you're setting the stage, as it were, uh, there, because this is occurring during a strike, right? Right. This occurs during the 1952 strike between the Radical Farm Equipment Workers Union and International Harvester, which became an extremely contentious, violent strike. Uh, it was really in some ways, um, a fight to the death between this uh, historically anti-union company and this extremely militant union. And this particular confrontation um, 
was just one manifestation of picket line violence and sparring between police and pickets and both in front of plants and and well far away from them that took place during this strike, which really was the culmination of a um, this historic enmity between these two um, very uh, contentious entities. And I should say that one of the leaders of the farm equipment workers had identified the philosophy of our union, he said, is that management has no right to exist. So that sort of encompassed the union's philosophy, and International Harvester had really been a pioneer um, in the kind of uh, anti-union, but but sophisticated anti-union techniques, company unionism, uh, anti-union law firms, um, that, and this, that's part of what the story that the book tells is those kinds of things have now become standard issue um, for corporations, were really pioneered by international harvesters. So you've got all that going on, and it culminates in this extremely dramatic um, strike with this uh, murder, uh, this dramatic murder at the heart of it in 1952. Well, so the fascinating thing to me, Tony, was that I'm coming off of just having finished The Edge of Anarchy, uh, which is by Jack Kelly, uh, the subtitle there. And I, I, I just love these subtitles, but uh, The Railroad Barons, <laughs> The Gilded Age, and The Greatest Labor mm-hmm. Uprising in America. And actually, the two books, as I'm sure you know, dovetail quite nicely because The Edge of Anarchy is about, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb, but I mean, to me, it's a very similar battle uh, back in the late 1800s uh, with another anti-union uh, baron, which was uh, George Pullman, uh, also mm-hmm. in Chicago. Um, right. And so I guess what I'm, I don't think I'm going too far in a limb in connecting those things, right? No, not at all. I mean, I'm a Chicagoan, so of course um, I think that Chicago is the center of <laughs> most things, and, and and certainly, certainly of uh, labor history and um, American radicalism. I will say, and and all of you out on the East Coast and in New York can 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 fight me about that, but um, but that's my belief. So, but you know, with the Pullman strike and the confrontations of the 19th century, people are generally more familiar with those things. I mean, obviously. We should have it so that um, public education and schools, so that all kids know about um, the Pullman strike and Haymarket and the Homestead. And uh, but to the to to a to a larger extent, those things have some familiarity. Uh, the farm equipment workers has uh, really been consigned to total obscurity. And since this has since this confrontation between this union and this company that actually have its roots in the 19th century is actually so important for modern labor history in terms of what international harvesters' definition of management rights and how the union challenged it, um, the shop floor battles over the speed of work, the safety of work, the kinds of things that you discuss all the time, what are workers' rights and who gets to define them. This is central to the um, conversation in my book. It's also about the conflict within the modern labor movement, uh, the, the um, post-World War II labor movement, trying to define uh, uh, what those management prerogatives were, what the, the rise of labor statesmanship with Walter Ruther and the UAW and the, um, and the move towards a more cooperative labor management framework that the labor movement tended to embrace and the FE resisted. So we've got a union with the FE, for example, that, um, had enormously high levels of wildcat strikes or 
they weren't really all that wildcat because the union actually um, embraced that, um, as opposed <laughs> to the other. Yeah, I mean, it, they could be called that, and, and, but they were actually a tactic that the top leadership of the FE was fully happy to um, to utilize. So you had literally thousands of strikes taking place at International Harvester plants, um, and uh, you know, so the kinds of statistics that just aren't seen anymore, and at even remotely in today's labor movement. So um, all of that is embedded in this story, and it's so it's 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 more recent. This kind of radicalism that we think only happened with with the with the Pullman strike and Gene Debs, and you know, we actually have a, a fairly um, more modern uh, you know examples of radical unionism that we can look at um, when we want to figure out where to go today. Let me bring uh, bring Ed back in, Ed. Yeah, uh, I was thinking about the Western Federation of Miners going mm-hmm. way back to the turn of the century. And there's a great book on that called Big Trouble, which is mm-hmm. a semi-fictional, semi-non-fictional right. piece. It's a really beautiful. It's one of the first um, kind of historical books I read about um, uh, those issues. And it, and it seems right. seems right. like every 15, 20 years we get some of this. And, of course, the Western Finder... Western Federation of Miners was also a radical uh, union, and there mm-hmm. were a bunch of so-called quote quote unquote wildcat strikes. Um, just for the audiences, and, and you know, we've got a great audience here, a very knowledgeable audience. But talk to me about wildcat versus uh, like a union-sponsored uh, strike. What's the difference? Oh, like you don't right. know what a wildcat is? is <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. That. That's Some of our audience that I, do not know that, yeah. Mr. Garlock. <laughs> For sure. I mean, unfortunately, right now, just strikes in general are so <laughs> are rare enough that we need to um, we need to often define our terms anyhow. Um, so, uh, and this is one of the great battles of the post World War II labor movement: is what was legitimate form of labor protest the way. The textbook definition of a wildcat strike is a strike that takes place without the authorization of uh, top union leadership. And the reason that that becomes so important um, is after the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act, any strike that takes place between contracts, um, between the negotiated settlement between management and labor, becomes illegal. It, It means that the the leaders of a union can be um, fined or even jailed if they're encouraging um, such kind of labor activity. And and so it's part of the reason why, for instance, right now, that many of the worker resistance um, activities we're seeing um, where workers are, are standing up to protect themselves on the job are technically wildcat actions. They're not, they're not sanctioned by top union leaders either because they can't or won't. Um, so... Within the FE, though, they refused to the union's leadership, as I said, since they tended to believe that management had no right to exist in the first place. They refused to accept this post-war bargain that in, in exchange for this kind of negotiated peace, that workers would get um, slightly higher paychecks um, and some benefits. They believed that it was important to maintain a culture of confrontation on the shop floor in International Harvester every day where the speed up of work was an ongoing issue. Um, workers were um, believed that without that kind of immediate confrontation with management, when there were speed ups and um, shop floor issues, that they couldn't protect themselves. 
And so you had uh, a culture within the FE where where the union believed that the best way to settle a grievance was right then and there, and that often meant um, walking out of the plant either for a few hours or a few days to um, to get the settlement that they wanted, and that usually meant the line speeds were reduced or the workers' grievance about um, how hard he had to work was um, settled in the workers' favor. So you did literally had between 19... 19- 46 and 1954, um, well over a thousand strikes taking place at international harvester plants that were represented by the FE. Whereas in the UAW, its rival in the industry, those kind of strikes became increasingly rare. So, um, so that's one of the big issues right now for the labor movement, right? Is how do workers, um, who are threatened with immediate, um, risk to their health and safety, how can they fight back if they can't walk off the job? Um, so if they can't say, I'm not doing this job because I'm my life is in danger and my coworkers' lives are in danger and my and the people that I need to serve are uh, endangered by my um, by my not being safe. So we want workers to have that kind of power. It's not just good for workers, it's actually good for all of us, um, I would argue. And said you had a follow up. Yeah, so following up, let's let's string that out a little bit uh, more. As you may or may not know, I represent nurses in the District of Columbia, and uh, during this coronavirus issue, there's a lot of questions on whether we are getting the proper protective gear um, uh, to care for people and to have a safe uh, working environment. Of course, there's laws that uh, the federal government through OSHA uh, have. Uh, so... Talk to me about uh, uh, the examples learned from uh, uh, your book and uh, and perhaps even the teacher strikes mm-hmm. in the last few years. Uh, play that out for me. Right. Well, I suspect that anybody who's involved in um, union governance of any kind knows that grievance procedures um, take a long time <laughs> to to um, to work out. Uh, problems that workers have have brought forth, um, they can sometimes and hopefully ultimately uh, solve or come to a resolution that uh, benefits a worker, but sometimes they don't. But at any rate, they're, they take a while. And uh, the problem is in all that adjudication and delay and back and forth, um, things get lost. Workers aren't protected in that immediate period. And so I think one of the things we're seeing right now is that even in uh, times where we're not facing this kind of crisis, uh, long drawn out procedures to settle disputes between labor and management don't usually benefit workers in the long run. What we're seeing right now with uh, your workers on the front lines of a health crisis like this is that they really need to have immediate ways of addressing the um, safety concerns that they're facing and that are affecting, I'm sure, um, the patients that you're caring for. And trying to, you know, run things through grievance procedures isn't uh, going to be effective right now. What you need, what all workers need, are ways that they can uh, address immediate concerns uh, about their health and safety right away. So ways that they can shut down a workplace that are not safe, um, ways that they can get immediate backing from government entities for that kind of determination. So much more workers' control 
which was what the FE was um, battling for, is what workers need through their unions and um, or even when they don't have them through the collective power that they can exert at the workplace. And, you know, you I'm sure that as nurse, you know, nurses know better than anybody else that they know best how to ensure not just their safety but the safety of the people that they care for. And so this is what a better functioning society, a society that really functions for um, for workers um, and for everybody else would um, can use. Tony, we're going to have to roll, but this has been wonderful. We've just scratched the surface, so I hope we can get you back on in the not-too-distant future. But the book, uh, which you're going to want to check out, The Long, Deep Grudge, A Story of Big Capital, Radical Labor, and Class War in the American Heartland, again, just out at the end of February. The author is Tony, T-O-N-I, Gilpin, G-I-L-P-I-N. We'll have that up on our website, DC Labor. Tony, great book. Uh, can't wait to finish it and can't wait to have you back on the show. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. If I could just take a minute to say thanks to John Boardman. My first book actually was about the Yale strike uh, and the hotel That's and restaurant right. workers there. So I just <laughs> want that. I always have a special place in my heart for hotel and restaurant workers and the clerical workers at Yale University, um, Local 34. So, uh, But anyway, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for all the great work you're doing to get the information to people who really need it. All right. That's Tony Gilpin, labor historian, activist, writer, and again, check out the book, The Long deep grudge we've had a and we've had a real run of just uh, great authors with fabulous titles what do you think <laughs> absolutely right yeah well that's uh thanks to you chris and by the way i'm looking at the uh actual cover of the book it's, it's fabulous <laughs> isn't it it's yeah, really it's, yeah yeah it's really nice font just like a good graphic design but uh that's just the cover uh, very interesting um uh author and uh i like the perspective of of not just telling a story of history you know of history but how it relates to even just what's going on now hey by the way chris uh earlier when we were interviewing john boardman i guess there might have been a communications issue i wasn't able to ask him questions but i did want to shout out john thank you very much for your support of nurses uh john is always supportive of our union and has been uh, a stalwart leader and i really do appreciate it and i uh uh, uh thanks again for uh, uh singling us out appreciate it absolutely all right that's going to do it for this week's edition of your rights at work chris carlock and ed smith so happy to be with you we'll be back next week stay tuned right here on wpfw 89.3 fm and stay safe out there folks all right take care everybody take care chris you too.